We are, part two tonight, calling a dead church back to life. And we're going to continue on Sardis. And so I want to reread verses 1 through 6, the words of Jesus to the, to the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, Revelation 3, 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars of God and the seven, uh, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes or defiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, if you were here last week and you can start recording, we good back there? Thumbs up. Okay, thank you. If you were here last Wednesday, you have learned that Sardis was one of the great cities in the Asia Minor area in the ancient world. In the 6th century before Christ, Sardis had a wealthy king who made war against the Persians, against Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus didn't like that, so he came and besieged Sardis. You recall that Sardis was a city that was literally built on a hill, the side of a mountain, if you will. It was surrounded by three sides of these 1,500-foot-tall walls, these perpendicular walls. Uh, the only way to get into town was to come from the south up the slope. And so one night, and this is key in, in what Jesus is writing, one night while the city was basically sleeping, some daring soldiers of Cyrus uh, uh, scaled the wall and came and slipped into the city, opened the gates, and the army of Cyrus took the city. Well, Carosus awoke in the morning and he was no longer king. I read today something else uh, in a different commentary. In today's equivalency, he took like six, uh, he looted the city, but basically took like six million dollars worth of, of whatever, of, of stuff. And it's like really, you know, really, really uh, decimated the city. And so by stealth at night, uh, the thief had come. And then four centuries later, in the year of 218, Sardis had again reoccupied its political strength and military might. Once more, it was secure in thinking that because it was so safely surrounded by these big old walls, it was impenetrable. But Antiochus the Great besieged the cities with his armies the same way Cyrus did. And while the city slept, again, a daring member of his army, a mountain climber took 15 men, scaled the city walls, undid the city gates, and the army rushed in and once again, second time now, took the city. And so the Lord Jesus here is writing to this city uh, and to this church in this city, and he sees the similarities between what happened in Sardis and what was going on in the church. A church that was, was thinking, hey, we're secure, we're safe, everything is good, and yet it was a church that even though they thought they were right with God, basically they were spiritually sleeping. The enemy was simply having his heyday. And so Jesus presents himself to this church as he presented himself to every church. We looked at his character quickly, Revelation 3.1, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Seven representing that of, of completion, of, of unity and such. And we talked about that last week. And then we, we, we looked at the commendation. And as I briefly mentioned last week, what caught my attention in this church, unlike the first four, is that every church up to Sardis, Jesus commends them for what was right before saying, but I have this against you, before telling what was wrong. And at Smyrna, there was no word of correction, only commendation. But at Sardis, to the church as a whole, there's really no word of approval. All right, the only thing that looks remotely like an approval, a commendation is found in Revelation 3, 4. You have a few people in Sardis 
who have not soiled their clothes. Now, in the other four letters that Jesus wrote to the first four churches, the majority of the church as a whole was truly following Christ. But in Sardis, the majority as a whole was backslidden, has fallen away, uh, had apostatized. And only a few the Lord can commend. And so he, he kind of lays it in this church, and it's really a hard word to receive, a hard word for them to receive, but also a hard word for us as well. And Jesus says, I know your works, your deeds. You have a, a name or a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Uh, the last thing you want to hear from Jesus is that you're dead. I mean, seriously, because uh, he's come to give us life. And if we're dead, we'll talk more about that as we get into this tonight. But, but Sardis was a church who's really, whose reality didn't match their reputation. Sardis had a name, a reputation of being alive, but reputation had ultimately replaced relationship with the Lord. The church in Sardis, I said last week, was superficial. And instead of being supernatural, it was busy, but it was also spiritually barren. Church, the same thing can happen and may I add, is happening today to the church of Jesus Christ. And so the Lord firmly says to this church, everybody thinks you're alive, but I know you, you're dead. You're dead. And not just dead, he also said the condemnation was that they were defiled. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled or defiled their clothes. Now, today we think of someone soiling their clothes, we think of a baby soiling their diaper. Well, this is not that kind of soiling. It was defilement in a sense of, 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 uh, of having sin in their life that was, that was unchecked or undealt with. And uh, thou has, a, King James says, thou has a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. You've got to understand, when we become Christians, we're given white clothes, if you will. We've, we've, we've changed the dirty clothes of sin, of self, of selfishness, and we've, we've received a white garment. We received a white garment. Now it's our job to keep our wedding garments clean. All right. And so he's done everything for us. But as we'll see, the church there did not keep their garments clean. Uh, the implication is that the majority of the church were far from living the lives of holiness and purity and being separate from the world, which God still calls his church to do. We, we are living here, but this is not our home. We don't belong here, all right? This church was no longer cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit in his work of sanctification. As Jesus says, you know, obey and repent. They were not obeying the injunction to keep themselves unspotted or unpolluted from the world. James chapter 1, verse 27. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 17. I'll be sharing a lot of scripture tonight. If anyone, it says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And then 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you once lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy and the word holiness means be separate from this world but set apart unto God in all you do uh, for it is written be holy for I am holy and so really the church at Sardis apparently blinded by her own success and maybe believing their own reputation has settled into a life of compromise a life of complacency a life of lethargy Quite likely, the crowds were still coming, the, the ministry machine was still pumping out services, but from the Holy Spirit's diagnosis uh, here, we realized that nobody gave thought to God's opinions. They were simply doing what they wanted to do. Uh, they, 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 were, they were more concerned about their personal agenda, uh, and, and so they were doing basically what they were doing without any thought to what God wanted or what God required. Because uh, God, God still requires us to be holy, holiness unto the Lord. And so the condemnation really was this, if you're taking notes. Uh, first of all, they had a reputation without relationship, verse 1. Verse 2, they were dead. Verse 4, they were defiled. Verse 2, their works weren't complete. Uh, verse 3, they had forgotten what they received. And then verse 3, they were not living in obedience. Quite the condemnation from the Lord. And so I, I say, you know, how quickly routine 
tends to place relationship. Once again, there, if there's one thing that God is after from you and from me and from the body of Christ is to have a living, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. He wants us to consistently and constantly abide in him. All right, And, and, and how easily we can become, even, in, even today, attenders of church rather than abiders in Christ. You've heard me say before, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to college makes you smart. Sorry, Haley. Or going to a garage makes you a car. Or going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. In other words, you can go to church all you want, but you can still, even going to church, be going to hell. How do you know that, Pastor Brian? Because I've been there. Been there, done that. Going to church, going to hell. You've heard my testimony before. Don't want to elaborate on that tonight. I came across this article from John Piper today, and it says, Why going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Christianity is not a willpower religion. It is not a religion of decisions to do what you don't want to do. It is a supernatural work of God by which you are born again, so you want God more than you want anything else which is a question for us. Do you want God more than you want anything else? He says this, if you don't want God more than you want anything else, you are not a Christian. John Piper. I'd probably repeat that myself. It's so good. That is, not, that is what the new birth is. It takes hearts that are in love with the world, or it takes hearts that are in love with the world and puts down them in love for, for with Christ and his Father and the gospel and the glory of being saved and the promise to go to, to an everlasting paradise of joy. If it is a ho-hum, boring, insignificant thing to you and everything else in the world is real to you, you're not a Christian. I don't care how many decisions you have made, how many aisles you have walked, he writes, how many cards you have signed. I don't care what you do, what church you go to. That is not Christianity. That was a revolution for me. It is very threatening. Yes, it is. It is terrifying to learn that my heart has to be changed in order to be a Christian. Amen. I have to have values that are new, passions that are new, desires that are new, joys that are new. New things make me happy. I didn't just start going to church. Yuck. Who wants to call that Christianity? That is not. That was a revolution for me. My desires were not too strong. They were too weak because to become a Christian is to be given a new heart, which means new passions, new desires, new longings. Jesus is now your highest treasure. And then he quotes from Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord is, he says, normal Christianity. John Piper. And so what is the counsel of Christ, his exhortation? Uh, we'll pick that up in point four then tonight. How does this type of spiritual compromising, this backsliding uh, apostasy begin? I believe, that he said, I believe the answer is found in Revelation 3.2. As Jesus pleaded with his people, wake up. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And Jesus says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, where did their spiritual backsliding begin? I believe it began when they started to... Uh, play with sin and be cozy with sin. Um, we have in Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. Point blank. And so if you and I are going to live according to our sinful nature, we will die spiritually. Right? Yes. Um, there, there's a little poem here. Now I lay me down to sleep. The sermon's long and the subject's deep. If he gets done before I wake, someone give me a gentle shake. Well, hopefully that doesn't describe you. But tonight we're going to talk about spiritual sleep. Are you sleeping spiritually? One dictionary defines sleep as a natural, regularly occurring condition of rest for the body and mind during which there is little, little or no conscious thought or movement. When you're sleeping, you're pretty much out of it, aren't you? And I know I am. How many of you have ever, and most, I always say this, when, when you're sleeping, you don't know you're sleeping. You just, you fall asleep and you wake up in the morning. 
hopefully, or, or if you don't wake up in the morning, hopefully if you're a Christian, you, you're with Jesus, you know. Uh, but but uh, have you ever tried to catch yourself going to sleep? It's like, I'm going to catch myself going to sleep. I, for one, and I'm embarrassed to say this because you mentioned snoring, John snores. There's not one person here who hasn't snored, all right? <laughs> I can guarantee it, all right? I catch myself, I, I, I will awake myself from my own snoring. And it's, you just did it. I do. <laughs> kind of that. It's like, okay. And you kind of like, what were they? I, mean, I was sleeping, okay. But uh, sleeping, uh, during which there is little or no conscience, thought, or movement. Now think about that in a spiritual sense. The Encarta Dictionary says, sleep, a state of not being awake. Uh, voluntary functions are suspended. And the body rests and restores itself, whatever. Webster's Dictionary, a state of torpid inactivity. Death, trance, coma, a state marked by, uh, by this feeling followed by tingling, my foot's gone to sleep. Uh, torpor, torpid, torpor means apathy, dullness, uh, inactivity, extreme sluggishness or stagnation of, fun of, of function. Other symptoms, lethargy, stupor, laziness, drowsiness, listlessness or indifference, sleeping, spiritually sleep. Now, the word apathy, a -a apathy is a, 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 for a, a means without, and pathy is pathos, which means passion or love. And so apathy is without love or without passion. Uh, as I see it, this condition is prevalent in the church today. Uh, and I ask, where is today the fire of the Holy Ghost burning in the people of God like it first was when you first got saved? Uh, I, I, uh, I'm going to say this, and this is to our shame, but right now in the Assemblies of God, or is the, the stats, latest stats are, and this has been a few years back, only 30% of those who attend Assembly of God Pentecostal churches are filled with the Holy Ghost, are baptized in the Holy Ghost. And I say, what happened? I heard an evangelist talk about this last week, and he mentioned it. I didn't realize that, but he was Hispanic, and he talked about this, and I never put this together until he said this. And he said, you know, he says, as, as, a, as an evangelist, you know, and as, as, a, as a husband, as a father, we have kids. And I grew up, he says, and I heard my parents talking in Spanish all the time. And, and okay, how many, how many have Spanish backgrounds? I know Mary Lou does. Anyone else? Albert does. And so you, you've heard that as a kid, maybe growing up, and you probably are still fluent in your Spanish language. He said, he said, yeah, but we no longer speak to our kids in Spanish. Our kids are growing up in America. We speak to them in English. And he said, here's what happens. When you no longer exercise that before your kids, the next generation comes along and they miss out and they no longer speak in Spanish. Well, we can equate the same thing happening in church today, where, where we have a whole generation that, that no longer hears mom and dad speak in tongues because 70% because aren't baptized in the Holy Ghost. And he says, what are we to expect? If we're not fluent in our prayer language, and if our kids don't hear us, they're going to grow up thinking, well, then that's not for me. And this is exactly what's happening, I believe, in the church today. You know, and it's true of many, I think, AG churches. And, and I, I preached a series on the Holy Ghost and, and being filled with the Spirit this past summer. And, and I know that some didn't like that. And, and some um, thought I was preaching heresy in some of the things I said and even left. And it's like, okay, this is why I think pastors don't want to preach on it today because, because people aren't used to it. And friends, this is what, ah, I could just ride this horse for a long time. This is what made us. This is what has propelled the gospel. This is since 1914, the inception of when we became a fellowship officially. You know, this is what it was all about. And yet that number gets lower and lower all the time. And I, that to me is, is, is telling in that we are, we are not making disciples. Now, let me also say again, the flip side of that is you don't have to speak in tongues to go to heaven. I know some churches will teach that. That's heresy as well, all right? Um, but, but I want everything that God has for me. But I, I, I heard that, that Spanish illustration. is like we no longer speak that because of whatever, and therefore kids don't know that language. And I think there's a, there's a parallel as well in the church today. Now, how many have heard me talk about the Pensacola revival in Pensacola, Florida in the 1990s and so? Um, I remember attending one of those services, and I, I got this tape back then, cassette, 
all right? What's a cassette? It's like an eight-track for you old people. Um, but I got, a, I got a message. I heard from Steve Hill, and I was there at, when he preached on this. And he preached on the romance of Satan. The romance of Satan. And he wrote a poem, and I have uh, dictated this and copied it down. I'm going to share that with you because it deals with this idea of spiritually asleep. Hush, little sinner, don't you cry. Satan's going to bless you before you die. The world I'll lay before your feet. Don't be concerned for the judgment seat. Hush, little sinner, don't you cry. Satan's going to tell you the reason why. I'll give you fortune, wealth, and fame. From this point on, you won't be the same. My plans for you, there's so much to share. Trust in me, you won't have a care. If all these things can't satisfy, I'll give you more before you die. The preacher man says, turn today. My word to you is live to play. There's so much time, don't be concerned. You've come this far on what you've learned. Your heart is pounding hard, it seems. Don't turn to God, it's all a dream. Rest in my arms, we'll sing a song. Together we will walk along. This Jesus is a passing fad. They say he helps you if you're sad. The joy he brings is not like mine. I'll make you happy all the time. So hush, little sinner, don't you cry. Satan's going to bless you before you die. The world I'll lay before your feet. Don't be concerned for the judgment seat. And then in Steve Hill fashion, if you've ever heard Steve Hill preach, and it's fiery and it's wonderful, he says, this is a clarion call to you, friend. You have been lulled to sleep by the master of deceit. Amen. Amen. In Matthew 26, 36 through 46, it's a familiar story where Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he is agonizing over the will of God. You know, not my will, but thy will be done. He's wrestling in prayer, if you will. And what has always stood out to me in that passage is over and over again, Jesus found his future church sleeping. Matthew 26, 40 says, Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he asked, Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. And then Matthew 26, 43, When he came back, he found them Again, sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. And then Matthew 26, 45, he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. What stood out to me is this, at one of the most critical hours in the life of Jesus Christ, when he needed his church the most, where were, where was church, what were they doing? They were sleeping. Three times he found his future church sleeping. When a person is asleep, he or she is not aware or alert or involved in what's going on around them. When I am asleep, I am dead to the world. All right. Honestly, they're, they're indifferent, they're unresponsive, they're unmoved. The thing about being asleep, though, is that you can be asleep and not even know it. If you don't believe me tonight, when you lay your head on the pillow or when you sit in your favorite recliner chair or whatever, uh, try to catch yourself falling asleep because before you know it, it's morning. Last night, I woke up at 1.15, went to the restroom, got a drink of water like I usually do most nights, and then I woke up this morning at 6.35 a.m., and it was wonderful. I mean, I was like one of my best nights sleep. Usually, I'll be up three or four times a night. All right, But three times, Jesus found them sleeping. And I thought, what a picture of the church today. What a picture of Sardis. They were spiritually asleep. They had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. They were spiritually asleep. Because if they weren't spiritually sleeping, Jesus wouldn't have said, wake up. Wake up. This is Sardis. As Keith Green sings in one of his songs, the world is asleep in the dark while the church is asleep in the light. Now, at one of his most critical hours, his followers were giving into the flesh instead of submitting to the Spirit. As Jesus said, yeah, the Spirit, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Friends, we should not let 
our flesh dictate what our body wants. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I thought, how sad the very fact that the flesh is weak is all the more reason we should be uh, engaged in prayer, uh, be, being alert, being awake. The disciples back in, in Matthew's gospel yielded to the, the weakness of the flesh and they continually, three times, fell asleep. Yes, God understands our weaknesses, but he doesn't excuse it. Instead, he wants to help. And so tonight, what I want to do is spend a few minutes looking at what the Bible has to say about sleep. Sleep. Proverbs 15, 19. Here's where the verses come in, the Bible passages come in. Proverbs 19, 15. Laziness brings on deep sleep. Proverbs 24, 33 and 34. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. In other words, if you don't give heed to your spiritual life, you'll experience spiritual death. This is what happens in Sardis. Proverbs 6, 9. How long will thou sleep, O sluggard? When will thou arise out of thy sleep? According to Mark 5.39, sleep is a symbol of death. Where Jesus says, why all this commotion and willing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And in Revelation 2, uh, 3, 2, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. 1 Corinthians 15.51. Uh, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In Ephesians 5, after calling on Christians to be followers of God as dear children, Ephesians 5.1, and exhorting them to love and, and the personal holiness, Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.14, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. You know, awake, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, the NIV says. In Luke chapter 9, 28-32, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up to a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his Christ's face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Luke 9, 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Picture this incredible scene. Jesus had just taken his inner circle, his disciples, the ones closest to him, up to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And what happened to the future Christian leaders? They were very sleepy. At the very time, the Lord himself was revealing his glory. And I thought, how could that be? And are we any different? Because I see that condition in the church today. I believe it's time to wake up. It's time to rub the spiritual sleep from our eyes, to look upon his glory and say, wow, if he's revealing himself in all of his glory, I want to be a part of that. I don't want to be caught dozing off, you know. And so here's what the Bible says about waking up from sleep. Judges 5.12, wake up, wake up, Deborah. Wake up, wake up, break out into song. Arise, O Barak. Take, take captive your captives. Uh, and then Psalm 17.15, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. See, our goal is to be like Christ. I shall be satisfied when I what? When I awake. Matthew 23, or 25, verse 5. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. While the bridegroom uh, tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Now, there was a long delay before the bridegroom came, and all the virgins slumbered and slept, not just the foolish virgins. But all the virgins slumbered and slept. The idea is that this bridegroom waited much longer than was expected. The virgins had lit their lamps expecting him at any moment, but he never came. They waited and they waited and they waited, and the night wore on and they got tired and they all slept. Same thing spiritually is happening today. Lord, I thought you would return how many years ago? I'm just tired of waiting. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to live like I want to live. I'm, I'm, I'm no longer wanting to be under the word of God. I'm no longer wanting, wanting to be under spiritual submission or whatever. The point is this. Christians go to sleep when they stop looking expectantly for the soon return of Jesus Christ. And while the bridegroom tarried, they, the ten virgins, all slumbered and slept. Matthew 25, 13. Therefore, Jesus says, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. That's what he's saying to Sardis. Mark 13, 35 through 37. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. Here it is, verse 36, Mark 13, 36. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. Did you hear that? What I say to you, I say to everything, watch. And then Romans 13, 11. And do this, understanding the present time. Therefore the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Why? Because your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Next February 20, uh, 2023, I'll be 40 years old in Jesus. It was February 20 of 1983 when I became a Christian. Remember the day like it was yesterday. I wrote the date in my Bible. And, and, and guess what? I thought Jesus Christ was coming back for me in 1983. As everybody was reading when they first get saved, the first gospel, John, John's gospel, I'm in Revelation. I'm, 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 I'm reading this and going, wow. Uh, guess what? It's 40 years closer than when I first believed as of February 20, 2023. And some of you have been, you've been saved longer than 40 years, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever it might be. What am I saying? I'm saying, church, it's the midnight hour. We can't afford to be spiritually sleeping with our lives. We have to be awake. We have to wake up. Now, if the early Pentecostals expected the soon coming of Christ in their day, and they did, read Thessalonians, we must be closer now to that blessed event than what they believed. Now, we say we're living in the last hour. I think we're living in the last seconds of the last hour. You know, uh, John 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this, it's hard to sit down. It's hard to sit down. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And then Romans chapter 13, 12 through 14, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself, once again, clothe yourself, white garments, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. In other words, make no provision for the flesh. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And then finally, last verse. Well, I got more, but in this part. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 8. But you brothers are not in darkness so that, the, that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then... Let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So, I read all that and said all that to say the Bible has a whole bunch to say when it comes to sleeping and spiritual sleep. And the words of Jesus to the church in Sardis ring loud and true for the church today. Wake up. Wake up. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. And so Jesus says to them, wake up. He also said, who had not soiled or defiled their garments, that they would walk with me in white, Revelation 3, 4. The Bible often uses this term to walk. 
in describing our walk of life, our pattern of life, how we live our life. In other words, it's, it's a time for the church to lay aside the deeds of darkness and to walk with him in our robes of white. The Lord continues with his correction, his counsel, his exhortation. He says, remember what you have seen and heard. Uh, verse 3, remember therefore what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. Remember, obey, repent. Evidently, they forgot some things. They were not, they were not uh, uh, paying attention to that. And they weren't obeying some things. And he calls his church to repentance. All right, But he says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Evidently, they had forgotten what they heard or they had spiritual selective hearing. I can't hear you, Lord, you know, as your hands are over your ears. And so what does that say for us? We are to continually call to mind this admonition, which was been given by Christ, and not only the call to, to uh, remember, but to obey what we know, and then to repent, to keep it and repent. And then Jesus warns his church in Sardis that failure to wake up will result in his coming like a thief in the night. I said last week, what makes for a good thief? A good thief comes in the stealth of night, undetected, uh, un unknown, unheard of, whatever, and, and, and they're going to uh, steal from you that which you don't want stolen. All right. First uh, Thessalonians 5.2, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then Matthew 24, 42, Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. Uh, no one who is, who is a victim of theft was planning on being a victim of theft. I mean, it's just, it's just like we're not planning that. They come and, and we're unaware of it, whatever, and uh, um, it happens all the time and it's happening more and more in, in Arizona, in the metro area. A um, lot more theft in our neighborhood, in the, in the groups I'm part of, and it can read about and everything else. And I, I guess to me, when it comes to this idea of spiritual sleep, to me the most dangerous place to be is not knowing you are spiritually dead. Not knowing your true spiritual condition. In other words, living a lie. Living uh, a dream. Uh, Genesis 28, 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep... He thought, surely the Lord was, is in this place and I was not aware of it. Surely the Lord was in this place and I wasn't aware of it. Or Judges 16, 20. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Samson woke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But here's a telling part of that verse. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Those, my friends, are sobering verses. Not knowing that God's in the house and not knowing God's left us. In other words, not knowing our true spiritual condition. And so my question tonight for all of us is this. If Jesus were to write you a letter today, would he find you spiritually awake or spiritually asleep? Don't answer that question, but consider it. Would he find you spiritually dead or spiritually alive? Would he find your spiritual garment, your soul defiled and dirty? Or would he find you clean? White garments. Well, he did write us a letter, and it's to the church at Sardis. Because he also says to those who have an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what's applicable to the church in Sardis also applies to us. And so the Lord gives us, or gives us in the, in the church here a challenge, Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will erase, and I will not erase, excuse me, and I will not erase his name from the book of life 
and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, when we think of a formal occasion or a wedding, we see the beautiful bride coming down the aisle in a white dress. A white dress is a dress or a white garment. It's a garment of beauty. We don't wear it very often because it gets dirty. Back when I was younger, I used to have white jeans. Um, and I don't know why I had them. It was kind of fad back then. I'd never think about it today because I know how dirty white jeans can get. All right. Um, plus, I'm now 60, and, and once a person turns 60, it's fall. Forget the white jeans. Put them away for the wintertime. I don't know. But I'm just saying we bring out the white on special occasions, that type of thing. Uh, in the ancient world, to wear white could be a symbol of at least three different things. Number one, wearing white could be a symbol of festivity, such as it is today at weddings and at banquets. White was the dress to be worn with a garland of flowers about your head. So we have festivity. Number two, it was a dress that was worn, I did not know this, in times of victory. When the Romans came back from a triumph, the whole city was said to dress in white. It was called the city of white on a day of triumph, symbolizing the fact what a great victory had been won. So we have festivity, we have victory, but white is also a sign of purity, purity. And so the Lord is saying all these things about our walk with him. He will give us that garment which will never be soiled again. The Lord is saying when you're with me forever, it's going to be festivity, it's going to be victory, and it's going to be purity. Hallelujah. To him who conquers, I'll give this white garment. And that's a garment we cannot give ourselves. He continues his letter and he says, You'll be dressed in white, verse 5, I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. Now in ancient times, each city had what was called a registry of its citizens. When a citizen died, his name was removed from the registry. Unlike today in America, our voting records, if you die, your name can keep on voting for years and years and years. I joke, but there's some truth to that. Or when a, or I couldn't, I couldn't resist that. Yeah, I could, but didn't. When a citizen committed a civil offense that was of sufficient degree, his name was also removed because he was now considered a criminal. The people of Sardis would be familiar with this kind of language when the Lord says, I will blot out your name unless you come back to life. A serious word. Now, keep in mind the Lord uses this as a direct threat. Some people have a hard time with that. I don't because I see both sides of him. I see his love, his grace, his mercy, but I also see his justice and his judgment. And we see the judgment of the Lord here. I always say one day a loving Savior will be a severe judge. Get right with God while you can and stay right with God until he takes you home. Simple. But the Lord does not comfort them with the... Do I love this. The Lord does not comfort them with the doctrine here of eternal security. Once saved, always saved. He says, I know you're dead, but your names are written... He, you know, he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't say this. Well, I know you're dead, but, but your names are written in the book of life, so you're good. Don't worry about it. If you die, you're still pleasing me. You're all good. He doesn't say that at all. He says, guys, if you don't wake up, you're going to die. Being spiritually removed, your name being removed from the book of life. And so he says to them in a threat, if you don't wake up, if you don't repent, if you don't obey, if you don't do what I've told you to do, if you don't walk in white, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I'll take your name out of the book of life. Which tells me it is possible to lose one's salvation. Now, if you have a Baptist background, if you want to talk about this, I'll talk about this more with you. But I also will say that you need to heed the whole counsel of Scripture and what, what the Word of God says because it is possible to lose out with God. Now, also keep in mind that Jesus is warning this church and calling them to repentance because He wants them to repent. He wants them back in the fold. He, he's, he's, he's pleading with them, get right, get right, get your heart, wake up. 
He's pleading with them. And so it's really, Sardis is really, this word here, it's a severe warning against turning away from God, against apostatizing. Now, said all that to say, friends, there is hope. There's always hope because God's a God of hope. Jesus wouldn't have said what he, what he said here in Revelation 3, 1 through 6, to the church at Sardis, if he didn't mean business, if he wasn't serious about what he was saying. But always keep in mind, when he calls us to repentance, it's his kindness. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And he's calling this church to repentance, as he did other churches as well. And so with that all being said, what I'm going to do, I need two volunteers to help me pass out something to you. This is, I was looking through some notes, and I, could, I told Albert at the beginning of the service, I could spend four weeks on just Sardis, and I won't do that because I want to get on to Philadelphia. Thank you. Just one per person. I was looking through some old notes, and I came across something I preached before I got here. This was September of, tw- of the year 2000. I didn't come until November of 2000. And I preached a message about spiritual sleep. You are spiritually asleep when? I want to walk you through these 15 points, basically. There's, I, I think I preached like two messages on this when I was in Iowa. Um, but you, it, when you think of spiritual sleep, think of apostasy, think of backsliding, uh, being spiritually dead, and it's time for a wake-up call. And so 15 things, 15 things that that might indicate you are spiritually asleep. Number one, you are spiritually asleep when prayer ceases to be a vital part of your life. Years ago, and I think it's been said by Leonard Ravenhill as well as uh, the, the late Jim Cimbala, uh, you can tell how popular the evangelist is by who comes on Sunday morning. You can tell how popular the pastor is by who comes on Sunday night when we used to have Sunday night services. You can tell how popular Jesus is by who comes to prayer meeting. Some truth to that. Number two, so basically number one, how's your prayer life? I'm not going to answer for you. How's your prayer life? Number two, uh, you are spiritually asleep when you are content with the biblical truth you have already acquired. Is there a passion currently in your heart of hearts to continue to dig into God's Word, to mine God's Word, to search God's Word, to be in God's Word and God's Word? Is God's Word still transforming your life? Are you in Sunday school? We have great teachers, great classes. I try to go. Almost every Sunday I'll be in there. I'll be in youth teaching or whatever. But I learned something. I haven't, I haven't arrived yet. I, you know, have you stopped growing spiritually? Are you still in God's Word? Number three, when you are spiritually asleep, when Bible knowledge possessed or acquired is treated as external fact and not applied inwardly. Years ago, and I, I have this cassette tape series in my, in my office, but one of my favorite teachers was Dr. Gordon Anderson, and he preached a series when he was the president of North Central Bible College and, and the series was on conscious immorality. And he would often say to his congregation, you'd be better off going down to the local bar and drinking beer and eating peanuts than to sit in church week after week and never respond to the Word of God. That would be minuscule compared to hearing the Word and not doing what it said. This is what Jesus is saying. Hey, guys, obey. You've heard. You've forgotten. You've heard it. Obey it. Repent. Number four. You are spiritually asleep when you no longer are gripped by eternity and your mind is no longer set on things above. And so, is your mind set on things above? Is your heart set on things above? Number five, you are spiritually asleep when the services of the church lose their delight. It's the, I got to go to church versus I get to go to church. You know, I was glad when they said to me, this is the day of the Lord, you know. Let us go in the presence of God, you know. So, uh, number five. Number six, you are spiritually asleep when spiritual discussions are an embarrassment to you. Are you embarrassed of him? Are you ashamed of him? I remember when I got saved, there was a message in tongues. And the interpretation of tongues was simply this. I I take it back to when I got saved. I am not ashamed of you. Why are you ashamed of me? And it was like a knife stabbed my heart. I mean, I was axed. I was pricked to the heart. I was cut to the heart. I am not ashamed of you. Why are you ashamed of me? 
And I, that was the day I repented and got right with God. Bawled my eyes out, went to the altar. Said, Lord, my life belongs to you. You can do it in my life and with my life whatever you want. And so, are you embarrassed of him? Do you confess him before others? Number seven, you are spiritually asleep when sports, recreation, and entertainment are a large and necessary part of your lifestyle. Christians are saved not to play but to serve. And if sporting events are as important to you as your spiritual progress, you're asleep. If you must choose between church and recreation and recreation wins, you're asleep. If you devote more time to play than you do pray, you are sleeping. Number eight, you are spiritually asleep when sins of the body and sins of the mind can be indulged in without an uproar in your conscience. Go and sin no more, trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus, receiving the grace of God in vain. When you are spiritually sleeping, all of a sudden you say, well, God understands, it's no big deal. And you no longer want to be set free from something you, don't, you know doesn't please God. And number nine, you are spiritually asleep when aspirations for Christ-like holiness cease to be dominant in your life, in your thinking. Talked about that. I, I, years ago, I preached on the holiness of God. And I took bottles of water like this, took the labels off, and passed them out. And I, I gave like five bottles out, and I said, okay, you can go ahead and take a drink of your water. But before you do, I want to make sure you understand that I have added to one of the bottles, uh, 2% of the contents is sewage. He just went, how many of you would drink that? We say it's only 2%, it's just a small part. 98% holiness is not enough. God wants all of you. He wants 100% devotion and dedication. And so that's, the, that's, that's from that illustration years ago. Uh, number 10, backside. Uh, you are spiritually asleep when the acquisition of money and goods becomes a dominant part of your thinking. Do I own this or does this own me? All right, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I remember when I first got, well, my, when I was a children's pastor in Bettendorf, there was a man in our church, it was, uh, no names here for those listening, but there was a man in our church, um, and he didn't come that often, but he was always glued to the TV watching the stock market go up and down, up and down, and everything else. I mean, this was, his whole life was in the investments and this and that. I'm going, what a pitiful thing. I mean, if you got investments, glory. I mean, hallelujah. I don't watch mine because it's, it comes and goes, you know. Uh, different presidents it comes and different presidents it goes, you know. But uh, but I was like, man, his whole focus was on this, and it really it, it's. I was a young man, I was in my twenties. Like, I don't want to become that way, you know. When I get older, and and uh, so whatever. Number eleven, uh, when you can mouth religious songs and words without heart, there's no passion during worship. You get bored easily. When's this song service going to be over? You know, there's, there's no spirit of praise, of joy in your lives. Little, little thankfulness and everything else. So, number 12, we've got to keep on going. Uh, when you can watch degrading movies or shows on TV, listen to degrading music, read morally debilitating literature, and look at offensive pornographic websites in the privacy of your home. Bottom line, if you can't watch, read, listen to, or view it before all in a church service, you have, to, you have no part in it. If we can't show it on the screen, and yet you're watching it at home in your computer in privacy of your bedroom or wherever it might be, you have no business doing that. And let me just add here, there are very popular television shows on Paramount today, something about a national park called Yellowstone that has the most vulgar language on it, and I have heard so many Christians who say they love this show. If you're watching it, shame on you. That's a rebuke from me to you. Thirteen. It's getting quiet in this Methodist church. When the slightest excuse seems sufficient to keep you from your spiritual duty and opportunity. Faithful Christians want to serve when part of the body. Want to find out where they're gifted, how they've been equipped. They're, they're doing the work of ministry. Um, I put in the bottom line, the work of the kingdom of God cannot be done in an hour and a half on Sunday morning. And then I off, I've also said in membership class, I often say, God wants you to do more than sit in a pew and look at the back of somebody's head for an hour and a half. He wants you involved. He wants you ministering. You've been gifted by God to do that. Number 14, 
when the spiritual condition of the world declines around you and you cannot perceive it. Growing Christians are perceptive. And then finally, because at 7.15, you become content with your lack of spiritual power and no longer seek repeated endowments of power from on high. We need to be continually filled with the Holy Ghost. Why? If someone says, why do you need repeated fresh infillings of the Holy Spirit to which I think it was Miss Wigglesworth said, because I leak. I need more. I need more. I often say, my shadow hasn't healed the sick yet. There's more. My sweat apron, my prayer cloth, handkerchief, whatever, hasn't healed the sick yet. There's more. How hungry, how thirsty are you spiritually? Or have you become spiritually asleep? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, tonight we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love, even your love to the church at Sardis that you held in your hand. We thank you for the word of correction that you bring to us. You correct us, as your word says, because you love us. If not, we are illegitimate children. And so, Father, give us all tonight ears to hear what Holy Spirit would say to our hearts. Give us ears to hear and hearts that obey because we want to live out our lives by living out the word that we've heard to the church of Sardis. And we ask you, God, to wake us up as your church. God, we're sleeping and we need a wake-up call because your word comes to us. Your word says that you'll come like a thief in the night and that we'll be unprepared for your coming unless we're awake spiritually. And so, God, help us to keep watch. Help us, God, to daily deny our flesh and to yield to the Holy Ghost because we don't know what day you're going to come. Lord, help us tonight by your Spirit to understand the times, the days we're living in, to understand that the hour has come for us to wake up from our slumber because our salvation truly is nearer now, today, than when we first believed. Father, we ask, God, for white garments of holiness, of purity, Garments without spot or wrinkle. Garments that have been washed and made white by the blood of the Lamb. And Father, we ask you to change us. Change us to be overcomers. And not to erase our names from the book of life. And we ask God forgiveness. Because you call us to repentance. You call your church to repentance. May we remember that we have received and heard. And may we keep on obeying those things day in and day out. May we strengthen what remains as your word tells the church at Sardis and, and may, may our deeds be complete in your sight by stay, staying connected to our head, the body of Christ, the head of Christ, Jesus Christ. God, we look back to a time in which we were more dedicated to you, we we're more dedicated to your word than we are today, more earnest in our devotion to you, more earnest than we are at this moment, more loyal to our brothers and sisters in Christ, Father a day when we obeyed and didn't ask questions and didn't try to figure you out, a day when our works were complete, a day when our relationship was with you was more important than our reputation was with others. And Father, I know this is a hard word for us to receive as it is for me to give tonight, but you want to exhort us to remember and to turn again and to come alive to you, to wake up from our spiritual sleep and slumber. God, the time of coasting in the past is over. It's an abomination before you in your sight and you'll have none of it. And so Father, bring the sharp sword of your word into this moment and jar us from our complacency. Awaken your church. Awaken the body of Christ in America today. Lord, please revive us again. Breathe words of life into us that we might truly repair the altars of our life, the altars of prayer, the altars of devotion, the altars of service to you and your people. Father, help us to be a church that loves you passionately and that loves people persistently. You said, by this all will know that we are your disciples if we have love for one, one for another. But God, may our love for you be preeminent be first in our lives. And so give us, the body of Christ tonight, a heart of true repentance 
which will be then evidenced in the way we live our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right. God bless you all. Next week, I am really torn here because we have one week before uh, the new year. We have service next week, which is the 14th of December. And right now, I'm leaning at doing the church. I know in years gone by, we've had a Christmas teaching with a Christmas party with goodies out there. And I'm really thinking about, and if you're okay with this, can we just hit Philadelphia hard next week? And I think I can do Philadelphia in one week. There is no word of condemnation, only commendation. Uh, and so it's the second church of the seven. And I think I can do it in one week. Is that okay? Is that cool? Let's, let's, shoot, let's, let's shoot for that. And so read then uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13 to the church at Philadelphia. It's a great word, um, and we'll, we'll do that next week, and we'll, we'll forego the Christmas goodies. Is that cool? I don't need it. <laughs> so, um, and uh, if you want some, then uh, go to each other's homes and snack on each other's Christmas goodies. All right, God bless you all. Thanks for letting me share tonight, and uh, let's hear the word of the Lord. Amen. Bless you.